Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Line of Lamb Ministries, and welcome again to our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We are at chapter 11, beginning at verse 20 in this program. In the previous program, we heard Yeshua give a tribute to John the Baptist uh, for the work that he'd done. And if you recall, the people regarded John as a prophet. Uh, he had been in the wilderness calling on everyone to repent, for the kingdom of God is near. He's the forerunner of the Messiah, and yet the leadership of the nation are the ones that were rejecting him. And of course, if you remember the story of King Herod and his daughter dancing, and the mother calling for the head of John the Baptist, and King Herod fulfilled his promise to his daughter and uh, had the head of John the Baptist removed and brought to him on a silver platter. And so Yeshua is giving tribute to his life and how God had used him. And so now at verse 20, uh, with that completed, it begins again with this. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of the miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazim! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon are two very prominent cities on the Mediterranean coast. They were in the area of the Gentiles, just to the north of this area. And whereas those that were in Israel regarded them as Gentiles, and we don't want anything to do with them, uh, here he's chastising these cities, uh, that uh, were in the northern part of Israel. And in fact, today, if you take a tour to Israel, you can go to these cities. Um, Bethsaida is actually called Banyas. Uh, it's the old Caesarea Philippi area. And Chorazim, if you're in the Galilee area, usually they will take you to that, and you can see the ruins of that city. And they have a synagogue there that you can actually walk into and see what synagogue was like. And we know that Yeshua and the disciples did go to those locations, that there were miracles that were done for the people. But as he said, the people as a whole did not repent. They did not turn back to the Lord, although the Lord did many miracles and did much teaching in that area. And so he's taking them to task. Uh, for their failure to respond to his message. In verse uh, 23, he says, And you, Capernaum, uh, will not be exalted to heaven, and will you? You shall descend to Hades, or hell. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Those are incredible comparisons. Capernaum was where Peter was from, and that's where Yeshua based much of his ministry from uh, in the synagogue and in that community, and then he worked out into the Galilee areas, Galilee areas uh, out from that city. And today you can take a tour and go up to Capernaum, and it's pretty much controlled by the Catholics. They have built a big church there. And because Peter came from there, while well, the Catholics emphasized that place. 
but it too also is in ruins, and you can go and see the place where the city used to be where Peter was at. And knowing full well that that's where Yeshua ministered in the northern parts of Israel, he ministered from that location. Verse 25, And at that time Yeshua answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou dost hide these things from the wise and intelligent, and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my load is light. That brings us to the conclusion of chapter 11. Yeshua is, is kind of encapsulating his whole ministry, that had you come to him, that it would have been much better for you. Whatever the burdens of life were, whether it was be sickness or problems with the soul, uh, Yeshua was there to minister and to help. And we have the testimony of those who did respond to him, and that's where many of the brethren such as Peter and other apostles, came from. So now, chapter 12. And at that time, Yeshua went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what that which is not lawful to do on Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. The Pharisees um, had essentially created a whole series of do's and don'ts. And modern-day Judaism today, which is the offshoots of the Pharisees, have a whole series of requirements, do's and don'ts, with regard to how to keep the Sabbath. In fact, and I'm not making this number up, a study of Judaism reveals there are 1,583 specific requirements concerning Sabbath that have been put on by the rabbis that originated from the Pharisees. Yeshua took issue with that. And one of the things that they saw the disciples doing was one of the things on Sabbath is you're not supposed to go out and harvest a field. However, they are mistaken about what the disciples were doing. The Torah also gives the right to any traveler or visitor that he can walk into any field, particularly the corners of the field, because the commandment was they are not to harvest or glean the corners of a field. That was to be left for the traveler and for the poor. And you couldn't go in with a sickle, but you could go in and gather whatever you could with your hands. So if you were going by an orchard, 
you couldn't harvest the orchard, but you could pick the fruit uh, to eat. Now, what they did was they, um, and since I grew up harvesting wheat, I know a little something about this. Uh, you can go out and grab the grains of, of heads of wheat, and what you do is you put several of them in your hand, and you roll it in your hand like this, and you break off all the barbs and the chaff, and you blow at it, and it blows the chaff away, and then what you have is a small handful of grain to it. Now, crushing the grain and milling it turns into flour. Well, what they would do is you throw a handful in your mouth, and your teeth suddenly becomes the flour mill, and it chews and breaks down each of the kernels, and you get the nourishment of the flour. Now, the flour is the substance that goes in bread. Now, you weren't milling it and baking bread, but you were getting the same nourishment of food as though it was bread. And, by the way, I've actually done this. You know, one of the ways that we used to go into a field and to test as to whether or not it was ready for harvest is you go in and you get several kernels and you'll blow the chaff away and you chew on them. And it tastes just like flour. I mean, it just tastes like a, a bland bread, uh, you know, that you're eating and you can consume it. And so there was no McDonald's sitting there out there at the corner for them to run in and get a quick, you know, sandwich. So they went through the field, and they gathered some, and they were eating it. Now the Pharisees saw them doing it, and they said, Ah, oh, you're breaking the Sabbath. You're harvesting from the field, you know, on it. Well, it, this is a really a clear case of that the Pharisees had become too strict uh, with regard to the commandments and to the right. There is a commandment that says the traveler can do that, that can eat, you know, along the way. Now, he's not permitted to go into the heart of the field and do it, but he can do it from the corners or from the edge of the field. Um, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen it, but, you know, I've seen, uh, growing up as a kid, there's some guy has a big watermelon field out there, and people, travelers, will stop the car and run out there and grab a watermelon. The truth of the matter is, in Torah, that is not theft. In Torah, that is not um, a breaking the Sabbath, if you did it on the Sabbath. That is a traveler being able to access food that God had produced, he had grown and made available. And the farmer uh, or the orchard, whoever is has the field, is supposed to permit the traveler to do that. Now, obviously, you can't go out there with a truck and haul a whole bunch of watermelons out of the field. That would be theft. But if you were consuming it yourself, uh, and going to consume it right away. This was the provision of the Torah to give food for people that were traveling in the land. They took issue with him about that, and and Yeshua used that one example uh, to point out to them that they were not following the law. Now, he says, he said, um, verse 7, let me repeat that for you, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And what he's referring to is, it's actually a quote from the scripture where the Lord has a set of priorities. And by the way, the priorities go like this. These commandments are for you to live. And even if it's a Sabbath, you're still supposed to do the things that are necessary for life. That's the reason why we have the Famous exception to Sabbath, if there's an ox in the ditch, you will save the ox. Show compassion 
toward the the ox to save its life, even though it's a labor's task to deliver the animal on Sabbath, might require multiple people to assist in doing that. And that's not a violation of Sabbath because you're doing it to maintain life. That is never a, a, a prohibition uh, for the Sabbath. And finally, he concludes in verse 8, where he says, For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so he's referring to the Messiah King. If the Messiah King gives you authorization to do something, and you think, oh, it might be contrary to what the law or the commandments have said, let me go ahead and just kind of explain something to you. The lawgiver, of which the Messiah is the lawgiver, he was at Mount Sinai and gave those commandments. If the lawgiver says, this is what I want you to do for the purposes of life, I don't care what your understanding is about the commandments of the Lord, you are authorized to do so. Now, the Christian world has gone way too far with this as much as the rabbinical world went too far the other way. The Christian world has taken the position of, I don't care what the commandment is because I believe in the Messiah, I can do whatever I want. That's ridiculous as well. Uh, the Messiah still holds to the commandments. They are still his commandments. If you love the Lord, you will keep his commandments. And he said that. If you love me, keep my commandments. So this idea, well, I love the Messiah, so I don't have to keep the commandments, is the exact opposite of what the Messiah taught. And so um, if you would, this is what messianics go through. Uh, when they begin to learn the commandments, one of the first commandments they learn to keep is to keep the Sabbath, or they attempt to keep the Sabbath. And it's part of our faith in the Messiah. It's not separate from, oh, well, we're trying to follow the law, we're fine, fine to follow the teaching of Moses. Yes, we are. But we're doing so because we see a bigger thing here that has to do with the Messiah. The Sabbath was given originally so that we would constantly remember uh, every week on the Sabbath the Creator who created all things. We worship the Creator. We want to follow the Creator. We worship the Lawgiver. We worship our Heavenly Father and His Son and, and, and what they're doing for us. And we see the blessings and the covenants that we have with Him. It's just absolutely crazy to somehow separate out the Messiah from the Sabbath and say, well, I don't have to do the Sabbath. I'm, I'll, I'll believe in the Messiah. And this other business that you may have heard of where people will go around, well, it doesn't matter what day it is as long as you have one day. Baloney. Baloney. The Sabbath is the seventh day. It's the picture, again, of the Creator creating the heavens and the earth that we live on and is provided for us. Uh, to live here. Uh, failure to do so is at great odds with our faith in the Messiah. So let me encourage you, for those of you who hold to the Messiah, that you want to hold to the Sabbath because our Messiah and Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath, just as he said. All right, verse 9, And departing from there, he went into their synagogues, and behold, there was a man with a withered hand, and they questioned him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, in order that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man shall there be among you shall, who shall have one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? 
Or how much more value than, than is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on Sabbath. Again, here's this base teaching. Now he's doing it in the synagogue. They're trying to entrap him. They're trying to find fault with him. And I understand uh, where they're coming from. They're trying to defend their theology and their position. They've already made the decision to add certain things to the Torah, uh, which they weren't authorized to do. So they're defending their position, and they're trying to point out how Yeshua is different from them. And they think that that's a way to accuse him of wrongdoing, uh, where they render their, their judgment uh, over these things. When in truth of fact, they are not judges of Sabbath. They're supposed to be observing the Sabbath according to what Moses taught. And if there's going to be a judge who's sitting around here about Sabbath, it would be Yeshua the Messiah. He would be the proper judge of what is correct. So he answers them and explains, remember the Torah teaches, you yourselves do this. You yourselves, if you have one of your sheep and it falls down there, and I don't care if it is Sabbath, you go and rescue the sheep. Don't you see that you're not, your rule, this added rule that you put, doesn't work. It's not right. It's not proper before the Lord. So he's appealing to them in that case. And so he's got an example of a man uh, who uh, needs to be healed. So in verse 13, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. And at that point, the mind of the Pharisees was very opposed to the Messiah, whereas he may have been kind of an anomaly, and they were trying to understand what he's doing. Uh, now, all of a sudden, they've made a clear decision. Okay, that guy is different from us. He's at odds with our teaching, and at this point, we want to get rid of him. Um, it, obviously, there, there's nothing in the faith, nothing in the Torah that says, hey, if a guy disagrees with you, well, you're supposed to go kill him. There's nothing in the Torah that says that. So it shows the corruption within their hearts. Verse 15, But Yeshua, aware of this, withdrew from them, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to make him known, in order what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet be fulfilled, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. A battered reed he will not break off, and smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice uh, to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is, um, by the way, that's an interesting quote, and the copiers, it comes from Isaiah 42, it's verses 1 through 4. If you actually go to Isaiah 42 and read the quote, you will find out that this quote in the Gospel of Matthew is not fully accurate. Let me read to you what it says on the last line actually in Isaiah. And his name, the Gentiles will hope for his law. The law was intended for all of mankind including the Gentiles, and that the Messiah would come, the great prophecy of the Messiah, 
is that he would be the teacher of the Torah to all of the nations. The prophecy I'm sure you're very familiar with, for the Torah shall go forth out of Zion and the word of the Lord out of Jerusalem. It's given a couple of times by Isaiah and Micah. And this prophecy is regarded, this is the, the irony of this situation, this prophecy is regarded as one of the greatest prophecies of the Messiah. That when the Messiah comes, he will teach the Torah properly to all of the nations, so there will be justice in all of the nations. The throne of God, is the foundation is justice and righteousness, and the Messiah would come and do that. And, uh, the, and the Lord said, if you annul the least of these commandments and teach others, you shall be least in the kingdom. And by depriving other brethren of the teaching of the law and annulling it for them, making it not applicable to them, that is what the Messiah was warning against. And he basically explained at that same time, unless your righteousness exceeds that of scribes and Pharisees, you'll not see the kingdom. So if you hold to the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees on these matters, you got a problem with the Messiah. So I, as a Messianic teacher, teach the law to all people who want to hear it, native-born, alien, and sojourners, just as Moses is instructed in here, just as the Messiah is doing as well. So he quotes from Isaiah. This is a great quote, but make sure that you make a notation in your Bible at the end of verse 21, you need to add the words, for his law. That is actually what it says in Isaiah. Verse 22, Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man, whom was blind and deaf, and he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed, and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? They're suddenly recognizing, wait a minute, he's doing the things that the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to be able to do things beyond what a man can do. He has to have the power of God. So they're beginning to go, oh my goodness, what if this guy is the Messiah? They're, they're starting to get it. However, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So they had to come up with a way to explain how does this person have this power over all of these spiritual forces. They're thinking he could be the Messiah, and they want to dismiss. They don't want the people to believe that. They, they are at odds with him, and so they're trying to claim, well, what he's doing is really the work of the devil. Now with that, verse 25, And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself cannot stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, um, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges." But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and he will then plunder his house? He who is, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. 
there's a lot of logic involved here, and it basically it comes down to this key statement that the Messiah makes. He says, if a house is divided against itself, how will it stand? Well, throughout history, we know this to be true. We know that when conflict comes into, whether it be an organization, a nation, a single household, if all of a sudden they're divided against each other, it is not going to go well with them. That house will not stand. That nation will not stand. Verse 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whosoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. He makes another very simple uh, comparison here, which I think is part of this discernment business. Bad fruit doesn't come from a good tree. And good fruit doesn't come from a bad tree. One of the things that I teach um, is about exercising good discernment is I put this little picture like you and I, and we're sitting up in this giant tree. We're sitting on the branches of this tree. Now, we believe that tree that we're in is the tree of life. We, we believe that. Now, we, the tree of life, let me explain spiritually, the roots are all about the Lord. That's where all the nourishment comes into the tree. It comes from the Lord, and he's the establishment. He's the anchor uh, for the tree. The trunk of the tree, which is a singular thing, is, are the commandments and the Torah of God. And the branches that branch out are all the different ministries and all the different ways. And up here in the branches is where fruit is produced. Fruit's not produced by the trunk. It's, it's the branches that produce the fruit. Now, here we are setting up in the branches, and all of a sudden somebody plucks a piece of fruit, and he says, hey, you know, this is good fruit here. Well, you know what you need to do? You need to look at the branch that you plucked that fruit from and trace it back and see if it goes back to the Torah and back to the roots of the Lord. If all of a sudden you're sitting in the branch and somebody hands you a piece of fruit and it come off a branch that goes to another tree, you're not, that, that's not good fruit for you. You see, that fruit belongs to that tree, whatever it is. And the fruit that comes from the Torah tree, the tree of life, that's good fruit because this is a good tree, the other is a bad tree. And as you know, fruit, when it turns bad, can become poisonous for you. It's not for your health. Uh, it will harm you. So that's the picture that he's trying to give here. And he, he's talking about basic spiritual discernment on how to proceed down this life interacting with all the different brethren that we come into, hearing all the new things that we hear, that we learn in the faith, because we're always learning, how to discern and how to pick and choose correctly, examine things correctly, so they can be a part of the faith. When people hear a new teacher, and I remember this, um, when people started hearing my teaching, which was for them coming out of the church, was radically different, one of the things I would try to explain to him is, where did I get this fruit from? Where did, where did I, it's off this branch. Let me show you where it goes into the Torah. 
See, it originates from this tree from the Torah, this item that we have. And one of the things that um, I have advocated, that any truth that you may latch onto in the faith, and you say this is the truth, I believe can be traced back to one of the commandments and part of the instruction of the Torah. And if I can't find the link between that particular teaching tracing back to the Torah, then we got a problem with that. Um, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and he said to him, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to them but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgments and shall condemn it because they, repent, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, he's hinting at, look, I'm the Messiah. I'm standing here. I'm telling you straight. Look back at the previous stories. Look back at what the rest of the Scripture tells you. Do you remember the story of Jonah, that that was an incredible event? He said, the only sign that you're going to see is the sign of Jonah. Uh, by the way, uh, that is a very specific thing. Um, and just very quickly, let me just say to you, there is in the scribal marks that are in the Torah, in Numbers chapter 10, at the last two verses, just before the last two verses, and immediately after, the scribes put a special mark in the scripture. They take the letter noon, which looks like a bracket, and they invert it. It's blatantly obvious as you look down through the Hebrew text. Here's the letter noon, but it's drawn backwards. It's called the inverted noon. That is the symbol of the resurrection. It, the fish symbol of the noon means the quickening of life. If you draw it backwards, it means the life from the dead. That is the understanding and the teaching by the scribes about the Torah. By the way, there's a whole bunch of these inverted noons sitting in one of the Psalms where it repeats the story of Jonah. That same sign is repeated in the psalmist repeating the story of Jonah. That's the sign of the fish. And, oh, by the way, the common sign in the early faith of the faith was the sign of the fish. The inverted noon, the story of the resurrection, was incredibly important. Here is Yeshua speaking to him. This is the only sign that you're going to be given. Now, for us who believe in the Messiah, that's a very powerful sign. And the instruction on the inverted noons is very powerful to us of our faith, the promise to resurrect us. And there's two resurrections, two great resurrections. The first one is the Messiah, who defeats his enemies, defeats death. And the second one is the resurrection of us. And that's what those two verses in Numbers chapter 10 say. You know, that um, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies flee. Return, O Lord, the resurrection, return, O Lord, to the myriads of Israel's families. And so there's his resurrection, our resurrection. That's the sign of the resurrection. That's the sign of Jonah.
that was in the scriptures. And that's what he's referring to. Very powerful instruction there. All right, in our next um, program, uh, we are going to begin at, um, uh, let's see, we're going to begin at verse 42. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, we'll begin our next study at that point. Shalom, everyone.